now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and, and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive, who is lost and is found. Father, what a, what a picture, Father, of the gospel. Lord, as we see here how gracious you are. Us being undeserving of your love, Father, you love us so much. Father, I pray as your word is about to be brought, Father, that we will tune our ears to hear, Father. Not just as a reminder, Father, or remembrance, Father, but to take heart in what we hear. Father, I pray that this word spoke will be hidden behind your cross. And we thank you and we love you. May we pray. Amen. Test one, two, three, or can you hear me? Good. Uh, yes. That was my favorite part of today so far. Man, that was good. So we um, we enter into another season um, of what, what we know and refer to Advent, and this is the... Um, 
this has kind of been a, a piece of furniture in Sulphur communities. Um, I don't know, just our existence since we started, we felt like this was a very important um, focus that we would want to have every um, every year as we would come toward Christmas. And basically what this means is the, the literal meaning of Advent just means to come. Um, and so it's this highly anticipated moment where um, where we're sitting and waiting and watching for the King who's promised to come. Um, and we sit in a time where, um, th- you know, this, this moment is where we step out of our, ser- our regular framework of, of sermons and teaching. We would normally walk through Scripture um, and, and books or in, in major themes, but here we just really select a few um, um, many sermons to, to kind of point our hearts and our lives to the coming King, to the promised Messiah. Um, and so this year, I, you know, we, we kind of charting out how all this looks and what our intentions are is that we would point our hearts and our lives and your hearts and your lives to, um, to this coming King, but also what's what comes with this King who, who's, who's been promised to us, what comes uh, with this Messiah, who, who, who is this Emmanuel, and what, what does he come for? Um, because Jesus didn't just happen to show up here. Like, he just didn't happen to show up on earth. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just circumstances. Christ came with a purpose. Like, he came with a mission in mind. And his mission wasn't to to come to earth to tell us to live a better life. And his mission wasn't to come to earth to tell us that we need to straighten up our acts. And his mission wasn't to come to earth to tell us that we need to be in church more. And his mission wasn't to come to earth and to tell us that we need to do better things and that we're horrible people and that we need to step up our game. That's not why Jesus come, has come to, um, to earth. On the contrary... Jesus has come so that we could have life. John 10.10, he has come, or Jesus speaking, I have come so that you might have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. So that's one reason he came. He came so that we could be children of God. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to make a way for us, to, to, to clear a path for us, like make us, point us back to, Christ, back to God, like get us in right standing and right relationship with God. And what's, what's beautiful about this is that he didn't keep his distance from us. Like, I am God, I am holy, I am clean. You, you are all sinners and unclean, and there has to be this chasm between us. He didn't do that. He sent Christ. He sent his Son. And I love the way... Uh, John chapter 1 would put it in the message paraphrase. We're going to be actually in this, um, in this section of verses in the coming weeks. But, um, you know, it says, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that idea that uh, the, this, this holiness has now um, decided to live incarnationally, like come among us and be among us. God met us in our mess. He, he came to us in our brokenness and in our mess. And let me, let me make no bones about it. Let's be very, very, very clear. We are a mess. And we all need to understand that, that we are all a mess. We are all lost without Christ. And so that's why He comes. 
He comes, he comes to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke chapter 19. And so today our text, um, we get one of the great examples of why Jesus has come. And you see um, the story that Josh just read for us. Um, and that's where we're going to spend our time today. Um, and it's, it's in the form of a, of a parable. It comes by, that, that's, that's the example that we get from Jesus today. And, and let me just maybe set the stage for this, that a parable is not just a cute story. Um, I, I read one definition while I was studying. It's, um, it's, a, it's a fictional picture of a kingdom reality. You know, Jesus gives us a, a, a fictional picture, something that we can like and we can understand and we can, we can relate to in, in order to communicate a kingdom truth. Uh, and so that's what parables are. But they're not just cute stories. Parables are meant to shock its audience. Like, so whenever you hear a parable, when Jesus starts saying, hey, I got a story I want to tell you, um, it's, it, through this process, his intentions are to shake us and awaken us and shock us. And so he does this in this text. Look at our audience in, in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Jesus is always hanging out with those people. He's always hanging out with those people. Jesus welcomes sinners. And that's a good thing. That's good news for me and you. But he, he, doesn't, just, he doesn't just welcome sinners. Like, he spends time with them. He, he, has, he has a meal with them. He shares life with them. So it's not just this thing where he's, I'm just acquainted. He's like, no, I'm digging into their life. I'm, I'm, wanting, to, I'm wanting to try to figure out, you know, I want to get in community with, with sinners and tax collectors and broken people. And, and I want to understand, or not understand, but I want them to understand who I am, why I've come. I want them to see me as all satisfying, all glorious, all forgiving um, and so that's where he's, he's at here. And, and I'll just say that as I was reading this, it confronted me. And I, and I feel like it, as a church family, as you know, just a, a family of believers here, um, this, this should confront us a little bit. Because the text said, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And are we that kind of people? Are we that kind of people where sinners broken people, people that don't look like us, who don't think like us, are they, you know, are we reflecting Jesus? That's, that's kind of our theme, right, of this whole family, is that we make much of God in our neighborhoods and the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ. And so if we're reflecting Jesus Christ accurately, shouldn't, shouldn't we start seeing some of the same things happen? The tax collectors and sinners would draw near and want to know, what is this love that, 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 goes beyond our culture, that goes beyond all of the, the, the fences that, every, that, that religion has built. What is it that, that, that pushes you over there? And so I know for me, I just kind of felt a little bit of conviction about that, that, um, you know, is, is Blake the type of person that would, um, where those people would want to hang out with him? You know, am I that kind of person? Now, this is who Jesus was. This is, his, this is what he did. And this really, really ticks off the, the religious people. It really does. Um, and there's more than one audience here. And that's who he addresses next in the next verse. Verse 2, he says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Like, this man who calls himself 
holy and he's this religious guy, he's actually hanging out with these guys. Not just like passing by and saying hi and being superficial, but he's actually like going into their homes and he's sitting at their table and he's having conversations with them and he's having a meal with them, almost as if he likes them. Like, what's the matter with this guy? Religious people. That's the other audience that he's addressing. He's addressing religious people and irreligious people in this, in this story, in this parable. Those people that would say, you know what, spending your time with those people, yeah, you're going to start probably being influenced by that, and that's going to get on you, and, and you need, don't get contaminated with that. You need to stay away, keep your distance, so you don't become like them. Those people also might say, yeah, well, you know what? The reason they're so attracted to that guy is because he's just saying what they want to hear. And he's not really calling them to any type of repentance. That's why that's, you know, it's religious people and that's their attitude. So there's two audiences. There's religious people here and there's irreligious people here. And Jesus would often say, me spending time with these sinners, these tax collectors, these broken people, these rejected outcasts, me spending time with them affirms my mission. It's why I've come. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. So he, he says, this is how I affirm this. And he's communicating to both of these audiences, the religious and the irreligious, and he's, he's after shocking them. He wants to shake both audiences. He wants to stun both audiences. And so that's where he's headed in all three. In his response, we see three parables in the story. We've only gone over one, but there are three others, two others, and they all communicate the same thing. And the overall, the overall story is that the lost are being found. And that's what all three of these parables are talking about. The parable that we're going to look at this morning is the longest of all the parables and by far the most famous. Um, if you have um, spent any time in a church setting or with believers, you may have heard this story about the lost son um, or the prodigal son or however you want to call it. Jesus challenges his listeners here of their view about God. He challenges these listeners, this audience, about sin and about salvation. So I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to point that out because what I want us to do, I want us to get into that same posture. Okay, Jesus is after challenging your view about God. He's after challenging your view about sin and your view about salvation today. He's doing that with this story. And so I don't want you to sit here and say, well, I already know. I already know who God is. I already know how he deals with sin. And I already know how one is saved. And so I'm just going to listen and enjoy. No, I want you really, I want this to confront you because here's the deal. Everyone who was hearing Jesus say, this, say these words was shocked by everything that he said here. Every one of them. So whether you're a religious person or you're irreligious, this is meant to shock you and to shake you and to awake you. And so posture yourselves that way. He's after um, an, an entirely new way of thinking about God, about you, and about this world. And so look at verse 11 with me. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming today. Now in our day, we can see that this is probably kind of rude and disrespectful, right? Like the son goes to the father and says, Hey, give me what's coming to me, right? There's, there's some... He could probably be a little bit more respectful. He could probably be a little bit more respectful. But we must understand the setting 
here and, what's, and, and how they're receiving this message because this is a culture of honor and shame, right? And so this is a complete disgrace that this son did this. And so when Jesus says this right here, just those two, two verses or verse and a half even, when he says that, this is shocker number one in the story. And so the religious people of the day would go, the young son did what? How disgraceful can you be to go to your father and ask him for your share of the inheritance? And we need to feel that because thinking about it, how does one come into an inheritance? Somebody has to die. Like that's how one comes into an inheritance. Someone dies. And so when a, when a person dies, or, or this son here, by asking his father for his share of the property, it's really just saying like, Dad, I'm not really concerned about you. Like I, w- I kind of wish you were dead. I want, I want your stuff. I want what you have. I want, I want what's coming to me. And so he was being extremely disgraceful by asking, by making this request. In this honor and shame culture, if the son were to make a request like this, the expected and appropriate response would be a violent physical driving out. Um, That would be expected. Like that's what you do if a son disgraces the father that way. That's how you treat them. Now the son may have lived with, may have obeyed, been like been a great son and all, but here's the deal, man. He didn't love his father. He didn't love his father. The son wanted his father's stuff more than he wanted his father. His heart was set on wealth and comfort and freedom, and that's what he was after. That's what the son wanted. And so Jesus is setting up this younger brother um, as the irreligious guy, the tax collector, the sinner. The sinners of that day. And so if you're the irreligious type and you hear this story, you're like, you know, when Jesus is saying this to his audience, the irreligious audience, they're kind of, yeah, okay, that's me. That's, I put myself in those shoes. And some of us can identify with this position. Some of us in this room can identify with this. You're like, yeah, uh, God, you know, I appreciate what you've provided. I appreciate what you've um, created and done. But this is my life, and I'll choose to live it however I want to. As long as I don't hurt anyone else or bother anyone else, it's my business. And let's be clear about one thing. Sin is never a private matter. Sin is never a private matter. Sin is always, every sin is an assault on community. Every sin. So let's... Let's be clear about that. You don't have the right to say, well, it's me, it's my way, and as long as I don't hurt anyone else, it's my business. God, I appreciate everything that you've done and set up for me, and it gave me a mind to think with, and a heart to love, and, and, and well, maybe a heart to idolize things, uh, and, and, and all of this other stuff, but, but really, it's, it's my life, and I'm going to live it the way I want to, and I'm not going to hurt anyone, and I'm not going to project this onto no one else, and so it's my business. The younger son is unraveling the fabric of his family right here. And it's not just the family. It's a literal, it's a literal assault on the entire community because here's what has to happen now. If the father's going to grant this request, if he's going to say, okay, I'm going to give my son the inheritance, he has to sell off some of the family farm. Because if you know how 
Scripture laid it all out for us based on Deuteronomy chapter 21. The younger son would get a third of the father's inheritance. If there's two sons, the older son gets a double portion than the rest of the siblings. And so there's two sons, so one's going to get two-thirds and one's going to get a third. And so the father has to sell off the family farm in order to grant this son's request. And so now the whole community is feeling the pressure. Because this, now we're talking about where we get our provision, uh, some jobs. Like there's a lot of things that at stake here if this father decides to sell off a third of this farm at least. And so the community feels the pressure of this because your sin is never a private matter. It is always an assault on community. Be clear about that. The younger son was doing a lot of damage both relationally and financially. He was putting everybody in a, in a predicament with, with this demand for his share. And so what's the father's response? Look at the last part of verse 12. And he divided his property between them. <gasps> That's supposed to be shocker number two. Shocker number one was that the kid asked for this. What's even more appalling is that the father is going to grant the request. He divides his property between them. Unbelievable. The father's response should be outrage, right? It should be this physical, violent driving away. That's what should happen here. But what we see instead is an unbelievable patience and an unbelievable grace. That's what we see. And the father is literally ripping his life apart, tearing his life apart for the sake of this younger son to answer that request. And, and he does that. And the picture we're supposed to get there is that your sin is never a private matter. It's always, always, always an assault on community. Look at verse 13 with me. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. So some of you might be able to identify yourselves with this younger brother. You grew up in a box um, where every corner you turned had hand sanitizer and you couldn't go outside when the sun was up because, you know, just a highly protected area. Um, and when you became an adult, freedom. Do what you want, Right? And some of you may have gone through this kind of season in your life. Some of you might be in this kind of season right now. And let me just say this, that freedom is a great, great value. But it makes for a terrible, terrible God. Pursuit of joy and satisfaction in a God like freedom will leave you empty and will leave you lonely. Look at verse 14 with me. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The younger son's pursuit of freedom came up short. He was after freedom. He was after uh, comfort, easy living, and this is where it leaves him. Because freedom is a terrible God. And so if that's what you worship, if that's what you're after, if that's what your life is driven by, it will leave you empty and it will leave you lonely. 
And what we need to realize about the Bible's definition of sin, like we might think of sin as, well, sin is, a li- uh, you know, if, if God made some rules and I broke them, then, then he gets really mad because I sinned, right? That's our definition of sin. But the Bible's definition of sin will go a little deeper. It's a little bit different. And, and its definition, is, it'll say that the, the essence of sin is the desire for self-rule. Like, that's, that's the essence of sin. It's our desire to want to be self-governed. I'm my own person. I make my own choices. I won't hurt anybody else, which is a lie. I think we're starting to establish that right now, that your sin does hurt other people. But it's the essence of self-rule. It's saying, God, I want your stuff, but I don't really want you. I want to reap all the benefit from what you've done, God, but I'm not really interested in giving you my life. Like, I, I'll give you Sundays. Does that work? The Bible will say that sin is building your life around everything or anything but God. And that's what sin is. Your personal self-rule makes for a terrible, terrible God. And so this is Jesus' critique of the irreligious, of this audience. And so if you've put yourself in those shoes, Jesus is saying, guess what? You're going to be left empty and alone. That's where he's driving home with that. And this younger brother feels this right now. He has pursued joy and freedom apart from the Father, and this is where it's left him. And so he begins to think, There's spare food on my father's table. Surely there's spare grace there. I'll go home. And so look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, the younger brother realizes here that I I am not who I am. Like where I'm at right now and and what the situation I, I currently find myself in is not who I am. And he comes to that realization, and that is repentance. Repentance is realizing that you were made for something far greater, and you realize that in that moment, that this is not who I am. Like, you come to yourself, you come to the realization that I was made for something greater than where I am. And that's, the, that's where repentance begins. And so look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Repentance is where freedom is truly found. And so you're seeking freedom and comfort and, and, and self like repentance is where that's found. You want to be free? It's found with repentance. Turning away from realizing that where you are is not where you're supposed to be. Realizing that you were made for a different place, a different world. And so that's where repentance starts. So let's stop pretending and start being honest. That's repentance. I'm going to stop pretending and I'm going to start being honest. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. While he was a long way off, the father was watching for him. While he was a far, far distance, the father was out watching for him. And when he sees him a far distance, when he sees him a long way off, he runs to him, he embraces him, he kisses him. Ah, shocker number three. 
That's supposed to shock the audience now. The father did what? After all of this, this is the father's response. This guy is crazy. He is whacked out. Running alone was the most, undig- the most undignified, shameful thing that a Middle Eastern man could do. Like this was a shameful thing. They did not run in this culture. It was shameful because it just made them look silly. Like they would have to hike up their gowns and stuff and kind of run with that. It would just look silly and it was disgraceful and it was shameful. And in this culture, a, a man didn't run, period. And so you see shame taking, he don't care. He's running to his son. He's going to his son. Unrelenting grace is so astonishing. Like the grace that won't stop coming. Grace that won't stop coming toward me is is astonishing. It's just like almost I can't even believe it. And that's, that's how this is supposed to cause, this is the response that's supposed to come from us. It's coming from the audience. Like I cannot believe this father has just done this. He wasn't sitting in the house waiting for the son to come knock at the door. He wasn't in his easy chair with a list of all the debt that the son would have to pay when he came home. If he wanted to come home, here's all the conditions. Here's all the requirement. He was eagerly awaiting his son to come home. And when he spots the young, rebellious young boy who has disgraced him, who has dismissed him, he runs to him and he embraces him. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now this is very interesting. I'm going to pause for just a second right there and kind of go off my notes because while Josh, you were reading this, I was just like, (sighs) he didn't get to finish rehearsing his letter. He didn't get to finish. There were some things, some things to follow. But the father says, yes, 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 no. I'm going to stop you right there. Yes, you have sinned against heaven, and yes, you have sinned against me. Yes, you are no longer worthy to be called my son. Uh, and, And that's what the son needs to believe, and that's what we need to believe. That yes, we have sinned against heaven. We have sinned against one another. We are not worthy to be called sons and daughters of God. We're not. He says, but... The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this is my son. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. So before we take one more step through all of this, let me plead with you who find yourself the irreligious younger brother. I want you to tune into this. Turning toward the Father does not end in rejection. It does not end with Him saying, shame on you and rubbing your face in shame. And I know for me, there was a time that I was the irreligious younger brother and that was the thing that kept me, kept me from turning toward the Father. Was that there would be rejection, that there would be Disgrace that I would have to, like, I'm going to have to endure all sorts of issues now because he's got to welcome me back in, but this thing's got to come with some conditions. And so I want you to hear that. The turning toward the Father ends with him running towards you. Even while you're still far off, he comes running after you, toward you, embraces you, forgives you, clothes you as a child of a king. 
So we don't get to rehearse all the things that we're going to do. So, Dad, I sinned against you. I'm not worthy. True, true. I'm going to fix this, Dad. Just put me as a servant. That doesn't fix it. And so the father doesn't let him even rehearse that statement. That's not going to fix it. You can't do anything. You're dead. My son was dead. Dead people don't do anything. A father is willing to undergo all the shame that is due you. He's the one who's going to run and hike up his gown and run and make a spectacle of himself on your behalf. And if you don't believe that, look at the cross. You look at the cross. He did it in Christ so that you could be brought back home. This is impossible to believe. This is impossible. We've been shocked three times already by this story that Jesus is telling. This is impossible to believe. This is how Jesus addresses the irreligious audience. And we would have a tendency to stop here. We all want, we all long to be the younger brother. And some of us may very well be the younger brother. And this has, wow, Jesus, you have just blown my mind away with this. And while your Bible may have a little subtitle or a little heading up there that says the prodigal son or the lost son, Jesus never intended that to be there. The story wasn't supposed to be about one son. Jesus opens the story up by saying there was a man who had two sons. And we really need to tune in here because what invoked a response from Jesus was not the irreligious people, the tax collectors and the sinners drawing near to him. That's not what invoked a response. What invoked a response, church people, is that church people, religious people, had a problem with it. They were grumbling. Oh no, sinners are here. What are we going to do now? Why is he hanging out with those people? Jesus said, I need to address that. I need to address that. And and this is where this story begins. It was the religious people who Jesus was reacting to here. Jesus knows his audience and he knows that like the original audience, there are many of us in this room that would fall into this religious category. That we, we know all the right answers. We know what to do. We, you know, we do all the good things that the Bible tells us to do and, and shame on those people who don't and shame on those people who don't live like us and shame on those people who look different and shame on those people who are dirty and all of that. Like, I feel like most of us in the room probably fall into this older brother category. There may be a few exceptions for the younger brother, but for the most part, if I, if I got a good pulse on the church family here, we need to tune into the older brother. The group who would say, that was so not the right way to reconcile that situation. Like, really, no probation period? Like, no time of, you know, we need to see if we can trust this guy again? Like, none of that. He just kind of freewheeling, welcoming this guy in like this? Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So what, what gets the, brothers, the older brother's attention? It's a party. People having a good time. This annoys religious people. 
People who are working all the time and I'm doing my thing and somebody over there is having fun. Oh, wow, really? Like that annoys religious people. It really does. While he's working, someone else is having fun. They all work and believe that this is how you garner the Father's favor. You don't come in the, the grace of God by having a good time. You only work, 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 and that's what earns favor. And Jesus is now pointing out that this older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. Like he's no different. He's done all the right things. He's worked hard for his father. He hasn't strayed away. He hasn't dishonored his father. He hasn't brought shame on his father. He's doing all the right things. And he is just as far away from the father's heart as the younger son was. Just as far away. The younger son, he openly rebels and that's what keeps him away from the father. The, the older son, it's his righteousness that's got him far away from his father. I'm doing all the right things. Showing up to church on Sunday. Man, I'm tithing, I'm giving, I'm being generous. I'm doing all these things, God. Why? Why do you treat him the same way? Why do you treat him with better treatment? So how can you tell which one you represent? I felt like we just probably take some signs of the older brother and see where we land. Um, One sign probably would be Anger. Look at verse 28, the first part. But he was angry and refused to go in. And it wasn't that it was anger toward the younger brother. It was anger toward the father. Like he was mad at him. Like, why have you done it this way? Why did it go down like this? This is not at all how it should have gone down. Like there should be some type of work or some type of sacrifice process that he has to perform in order to to make this right. And so anger might be one. If you're that person or emptiness... This is by far the greatest day, the most joyful day that the father could probably ever experience. Yet the older brother is just empty. It's not. It's the worst day ever for him. There's no joy at all. And so you might just be empty. Or you might feel like you're superior, right? I mean, check this out. Look at verse 29. It says, His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, I don't know where you guys grew up, but if I was to say that to my father, that was about as far as I was going to get. And I said, hey, look, like I'm fixing to tune him up, right? Just for a second, and then I'm going to wake up in some hospital with my jaw wired shut. And so he's, he's feeling superior now, like, okay, well, I'm the, I'm the, like, I've got the upper hand here, so Dad, you need to listen up. You need to listen up to me. These many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he's now disassociated himself, this son of yours, who came, he has, you have devoured, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. So another sign that you might be the older brother, and this is probably one that we might all wrestle with a little bit, is insecurity. He literally refers to himself as a slave here. I've slaved for you. I've done all these things for you. He doesn't call himself a son. He doesn't refer to himself as the father's son. He says, I'm just a slave to you. If you don't believe that you are radically loved by the father, you are going to be radically insecure. 
if you are an insecure person, it's going to be nearly impossible for you to forgive others. So your security, your self-worth, it comes from who Christ is. It comes from what the Father has given you. You are part of His family. So older brother, listen up. These things are not from God. Anger and emptiness, superiority, insecurity, they're not from God. And so the parable ends with the father reacting to the older brother. Much the same way that he reacts to the younger brother. Because, look at here, verse 28, that his father came out and entreated him. So the reaction of the father at this point should have been like his reaction to the younger brother in that you get out of here. This is no way the family is going to treat one another. There's no way that you're going to dishonor me and disgrace me and speak to me this way. But instead he goes out and he entreats him. He initiates. He goes to the older son and he pleads with the older son. And in this story, Jesus is pleading with the Pharisees and religious people. That's who he's addressing. There's an audience and he's talking to both of them, but he's directing his attention to the religious people. And he says, hey man, if you want to come into this party, you're going to have to identify yourself with these people. The sinners. Like you have to put yourself in that category. Because even in your own righteousness, you're far from the Father. So don't think you got it all figured out. You have to identify yourself with the younger brother so that we can all come in and enjoy the party. You can't come to the party if you think you don't need the same kind of grace that the younger brother needs. You're not invited to it if you feel like I'm in no need of that grace. In verse 30, he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And just pay attention to how he addresses him. He didn't say servant. It's a son. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. He's begging for the son to come into the party because Emmanuel, God with us, not only came to save the irreligious people, the sinners and the tax collectors, but he came to save the religious people, the righteous people. We're all in need of that grace. But one thing we need to note is that the younger brother's return home does come at a cost. It comes at a cost. And just remember, maybe something for you to think about is that the young son squandered all of his inheritance. Everything he had, he squandered. He didn't have anything left. And so the cost can't be paid by him. Who owns it all? Who has it all? The older brother. He's got the two-thirds, right? Now here's what I want us to think about for just a minute. I don't want us to get so deep into this that we think that, wow, this is some deep theology. This is a story Jesus has done. It's not a real thing that's happened. But we can pull out so many truths about the kingdom through this, and so we need to consider that, that this son returning home came at a cost. Someone had to pay. The fattened calf couldn't come from him. Grace is always free to the one who receives it, and it will always cost the one who has to give it. And so what did it cost in this parable? 
It's very interesting. If you read the other two parables, I encourage you to go home and read the first part of chapter 15. The parable, the lost sheep, shepherds tending sheep. There are 100 sheep. One gets away. There's 99. He leaves the 99 and goes for the one. And that's what the Son of Man has come to do, to go after that one. And there's another story about a, a lost coin. A, 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 a widow had ten silver coins and she lost one of them. And so like she, life stopped for her. And she began a pursuit looking for that one coin. Tearing the house up, sweeping everywhere, looking for that one coin because the Son of Man came for the one. But here, it's very interesting. Who goes in search of the Son? No one. So there's a little bit of a twist in this one. Like Jesus is saying, there's, people are after some of that stuff, but no one went after the son. He just had to go. And the story would go like the other stories went. Well, at a minimum, you would think that the older brother would say, I'm there. I'm, I'm going to get him, Dad. Stay here. I got this. Like, if it was supposed to be like the rest of the stories. But Jesus is the greatest teacher to ever live and walk the face of the earth because he designed us and he knows how we learn. And so that makes him the greatest teacher. And what he's doing in this moment is he's creating in us a longing for a true older brother. Like he's creating that in us. Like this older brother needs to respond this way, not this way. And we can see that on this side of the story. He creates in this parable a longing for himself. And he's saying that I am the true older brother. I'm going to come and do what mankind fails to do over and over and over. I'm going to come and do that. Jesus went after you at his own expense. He forsook what he had, heaven, and come here to earth for you. Jesus was the son who became a slave. See, the older brother didn't really even have a right to say, I'm the servant. Jesus is the true and greater servant. He endured the cross, being stripped naked so that we might be clothed, that we might not be shamed. He is the truer, older brother. And he comes to seek and to save you who might be lost. That's why he's come. And you might... Expect for him to come at you with a million reasons why you're such a terrible person and why you should never run from him again and you're going to pay for this. Like, that's what you would expect when Jesus finds you after coming for you. But instead, when he comes to you, he embraces you. He kisses you. He forgives you. He loves you. He clothes you in righteousness. And he, he loves you in a way that causes you to never want to run away again. Like, I don't ever want to run from Jesus. He's the best. Like, He's the greatest reward. He's where all the joy that I would be seeking and looking for, it's found in Him. And so I have to keep reminding myself that. I have to have the power of the Spirit in me to say, that's where the great reward is. That's where true joy is found. That's where all the satisfaction, all the stuff that you're trying to fill emptiness with, it's found in Christ. That's where it's found. And so you younger brothers, Jesus has come for you and he's prepared to go the distance and you older brothers Jesus is 
come for us. To plead with us that we don't have to be angry anymore. We don't have to be insecure anymore. That we're just as broken as anyone else and that we're in need of Him more than anyone else and to come in. All we have comes from Him and He's given us everything. All we have to do is just come in the house. Let's pray.